Uh, it really was an incredible week with some equally incredible leaders and students. And God really is doing extraordinary things in the lives of young people in our church and in our community. Wednesday night, we packed 43 middle school and high school students, one from Spain and one from France, uh, seven SLT adult leaders and three parent attendees all over in the rise room on Wednesday night. And uh, it was unbelievable. And I challenge you to do uh, just what we mentioned in the video. Talk to our students about camp. Ask them how it went. Ask them how their life was changed. Ask them what they learned, how they're going to be different uh, in view of camp or in light of camp. Uh, we really do want to show you and about all these things, uh, our word is Psalm 118.23. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Well, this morning, I'd like to give you one more lesson in Creation 101. And uh, actually, in, uh, with the students, we've been walking through the book of Luke. And uh, at camp, one of the big focuses uh, for the students was anxiety. And then as only the Holy Spirit can, just right where we were in Luke was a passage that focused on fear and anxiety. Now, uh, what I didn't know is Pastor John actually used this text a few weeks ago. We had COVID that week and the live stream uh, turned off, you know, mid. If you're watching the live stream, you know that it, it cut off mid uh, service. And so I didn't know that he used this text. But uh, this is where the Lord brought me again and again that I was supposed to preach this text. And so if anything, you'll get a slightly worse version of it than you got from Pastor John. And if you didn't hear his, then you'll get to hear this passage new uh, and afresh. Because he has been walking us through a series called Creation 101, and uh, in it, we've treated creation like a classroom uh, and a, a teacher, really, digging into God's word to see what it tells us that creation can teach us about God and his character. And this morning, we'll see in God's word that creation should act as a balm against anxiety and worry. Creation is an illustration of God's power and the power of Jesus that we can trust when he tells us Fear not, little flock. So turn or scroll or tap with me and your Bibles over to Luke 12. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, either on your phone or that you brought, you can find a Bible in the pew back in front of you. We'll be in the 12th chapter of Luke and we'll be looking at verses 22 through 34. But as you're turning, I want to give you a bit of alarming and sobering data where our topic this morning, anxiousness and worry, are concerned. Almost 20% of American adults report severe anxiety in their lives. In one recent report, 78% of adults surveyed responded that they had experienced, quote, massive stress multiple times in the last six months. According to a recent, recent Gallup poll, north of 60% of adults in America reported feeling stressed or worried on a, quote, daily basis. And brace yourself because it's actually much worse among younger generations. According to the National Health Institute, one out of every three young people between the ages of 5 and 25 have experienced extreme anxiety, stress, or worry multiple times per month. Now just wrap your mind around that. I mean, envision in your mind the young people that you know, your players, your students, your kids, your grandkids. Line them up in your mind and then just imagine that out of every three, one of them deals with this kind of crippling worry, fear, and anxiety. And I found enough statistics to really hit you with them for hours, but what is clear is this. We are a people prone to anxiousness 
and worry. And it's a good thing then that Jesus has a lot to say about these topics. In the Gospels alone, I could take you to Matthew 6, 10, 11, 14. In John, I could take you to chapter 14 or 16. In Mark, I could take you to chapter 6, but we're going to go to Luke 12. And joining Jesus there in Luke 12, we find him teaching his disciples. And he starts with a therefore. Now, as I like to tell our students on Wednesday nights, whenever you see a therefore in scripture, it's therefore a reason. Therefores in God's word typically denote or point to the continuation of an argument or a line of logic or an explanation of a previous illustration or parable. And really all of these things are kind of at play with our therefore in Luke 12. Because you see in verses 13 through 21, the passage immediately preceding, Jesus has used a parable and utilized a parable to teach his disciples and his wider audience that would also have been filled with some unbelievers to teach them a lesson. And the parable is a story about the rich fool, according to the text. That's what the text calls this person, who was blessed with an extreme abundance of resources. And having been blessed so, he decided to just build bigger and bigger barns to store it up rather than use it for the growth of Christ's eternal kingdom. He was not, as Jesus puts it in verse 21, generous toward God, but rather towards himself. The lesson was a sobering one as the shoe dropped in verse 20. The man who'd invested all these resources and his time and abilities in the building of storehouses learned from the mouth of God himself that on the very night that he completed all these barns, his soul would be required of him and he would stand in judgment. And God rightly asked, these things you have prepared, who will enjoy them? Whose will they be? And the point wasn't to think about and meditate all day on the reality, though it is a reality, that your soul may be required of you at any moment. If that was the point, you'd say, and rightly so, Arbo, you've only succeeded in making me more anxious. Now I'm just going to think about all, the fact that my soul might be required of me at all times. But that wasn't the point. Wasn't the point of the parable. The point was to proactively invest what God entrusts to us in a kingdom that won't pass away. To store up a treasure that does not fade. To leave a legacy that won't tarnish or fail to achieve its full potential because it's bound up in the person and work of the indestructible Christ. So this morning, we're going to hear encouragement in the form of an argument from Jesus because we worry, we're anxious. We think that if we don't hoard our blessings and build up our barns and lay up our ample goods, that there may be a day when we don't have what we need. We worry about the blessings, we seek the storehouses, and we're anxious about the ample. But Jesus, who walked in our shoes, and according to Hebrews 4.15, was tempted in every way as we are, knows us better than we know ourselves. Back to the therefore in verse 22. This is what Jesus says. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food and the body more than clothing. So Jesus is saying that we shouldn't be anxious, and he'll make a, a very persuasive argument about that, but that we shouldn't be because of a connection. It's a therefore you shouldn't be anxious, therefore because of what became before it, which was a parable about greed. So you think, well, how are greed and anxiousness and worry or anxiety linked? Well, I would submit that greed is almost always motiva motivated by anxiety in such a way that anxiousness and worry almost always leads to greed or selfishness. Let me give you some examples. We're greedy with our money because we're anxious that we might not have enough of it at some point. 
or maybe there'll be a day that God doesn't provide. We're greedy with our money because we're anxious that others might view us as less than if we don't have it. We're greedy with our time because we're anxious about getting all the things done that we think we need to get done rather than living according to the priorities that God has given us. We're greedy maybe with our talents and abilities because we're anxious that others won't appreciate them, that we'll be judged because of them, or that we'll come up short in the eyes of others if we put ourselves out there and serve and really use the gifts that God has given us. We worry about our children and that causes us to be selfish with them and towards them. We worry about drama or conflict or being hurt. We're anxious about those kinds of relational issues and thus we're greedy with our very selves. We don't fully give ourselves over in relationship to others. Neither our friends nor our co-workers nor sometimes our brothers and sisters in Christ. So as with all things, our Lord Jesus shows us a more excellent way than this kind of life ethos. He tells us plainly, don't worry. Do not be anxious. In Luke 12, he gives us a fourfold argument against anxiety and worry and stress. Let me give you the four legs of the stool if you're a note taker as we start out. The first part of the argument that Jesus is going to use is this. Your life is more than or greater than food or clothes, food and clothes. Secondly, you are more than and your life is more than, worth more than the birds and the flowers. Thirdly, God's kingdom is greater than your sandcastle. And fourthly, eternal inheritance is greater than or more than any earthly account you might build up. So now that we've set the table, let's dive into the text together with verses 22 and 23. Luke 12. He said to his disciples, therefore, again, you've seen the connection. I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food and the body more than clothing. So your life is more than just food and clothes. And Jesus begins his assault on anxiousness and anxiety and worry and fear by focusing on what everyone is most anxious about. Life. Just life. What causes the most worry and stress and anxiety in our life can be reduced to life. We're anxious about money because we need money to live in the world. We're anxious about our health and safety because if either of these are compromised, it affects our very life. We're anxious about our career or our job security because it provides money and safety, which themselves trace back to life. That's why Jesus focuses on the two things that are necessary to simply exist in this world. Sustenance and shelter. You need protection from the elements and you need food and water. But the wisdom of our Savior points us beyond what we need to just continue to exist. After all, John 10.10 10 tells us that Jesus, he came that we might have life, yes, existence, but also have life more abundantly. He said in John 10.10, 10, I came that you might have life and have it more abundantly. So Jesus tells us with kindness and a twinkle in his eye, your life is more than just what you need to survive. And here's a trite way of seeing what Jesus is talking about. Just ask yourself this question. Would you rather be a well-fed and well-clothed corpse, or would you rather be alive, though hungry and exposed? See, faced with that choice, everyone is going to choose life. Thus, life is more than just what we would eat and what we would put on. 
But Jesus wouldn't leave it there. Jesus would go a step further and say that there's something more than just gaining assurance about continuing to be in this world. Let me take you to one of these texts that I mentioned earlier, Matthew 16, verse 24. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Verse 26, key verse, for what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world, but forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? See, another way of saying this might be, for what would it profit Arbo if he gains everything needed for survival and more, yet gives up his soul to hell in eternity? So your life is more than what you need to survive. And then further, eternal life is more than or greater than life. So isn't it curious then that the two things that Jesus focuses on are things that he told his followers that he himself was the provision of. Not only in life, but also in e where eternal life was concerned. Where life is concerned, he called himself the bread of life. And a well that should you drink from him, you would never thirst again. And then he called himself the rock upon which houses must be built, shelter. And the Apostle Paul commands us to put on Christ in language that points to putting on a garment, like a cozy jacket. And his righteousness and his peace and his kindness and love go over our filthy rags. But what about the provision of eternal life? He said, yeah, okay, there's life, Arba, but what about eternal life? Well, look to the cross. Isaiah 53, the the, one of the most well-known prophecies that points to the, the crucifixion, calls Jesus' life an offering for guilt. Verse 10 of Isaiah 53, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. And when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. And check this out. He shall prolong his days and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. So isn't it further curious that the two very things that Jesus focuses on here in Luke 12 are the two things that he was deprived on the cross of? He was deprived of these two things on the cross. John 19, 28 tells us that Jesus cried out from the cross, I thirst, I thirst. And it probably wouldn't have sounded like that. It probably would have sounded raspy and, and on the throes of, of death's door. But he would not have been fed either to hasten death. And this was itself a fulfillment of a prophecy in Psalm 69, 21, where it's written, they gave me poison for food. And for my first, they gave me vinegar to drink. And that's exactly what they lifted up to Jesus on the cross. A spear that had a cloth wrapped around it that had been dipped in gall, which was a poisonous vinegar. Then Hebrews 12, 2 tells us that Jesus endured the cross, despising the shame. Have you ever wondered what shame was despised? What was that people who were crucified by Rome were crucified naked without any clothes because crucifixion was supposed to be a shame-filled deterrent for anybody walking by to look at the people who were on the cross and say, I don't want to be one of those people. I better not do anything against Rome. Thus, scripture tells us that people would walk by and they wagged their heads at Jesus as if mocking because he was despising the shame of the cross that he was nailed to. So fear not, little flock. Your life is more than what you need to survive. And your eternal life is worth even more than this life. So fear not, do not be anxious, Jesus says. Your God and your Savior has the resources to make provision for this life and for the one to come. Romans 8, 35 through 37. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation 
distress, persecution, famine, not having enough to eat, nakedness, not having any shelter or protection from the elements, or danger or sword. For as it's written early on in the church's life, they were being killed all day long and regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, not out of all these things, not through all these things, not on the other side when you're doing well on the other side of these things, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through Christ who loves us. So your life is more than what you need to survive. Secondly, your life is worth more than the birds and flowers. Read verses 24 and then skip down to 27 through 28. Jesus says, consider the ravens, not particularly attractive birds. They neither so, man, I just threw shade at ravens and I didn't even expect to. That wasn't in the notes, but you know what? Hate on them ravens. Uh, they're not pretty birds. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? Or consider the lilies, the flowers, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today, but tomorrow is thrown out, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? So Jesus' next argument is one of comparison. He says, look at the birds. Look at the flowers. Neither of these goes in need. The birds have their place and their food that they need. And the flower receives its rain and sun, both by God's gracious hand. And yet you are infinitely more valuable than either of those two things. Will he not do exceedingly and abundantly more for his beloved children than he will for birds and flowers? I want to show you a couple pictures. If we can bring those up. I got the pictures in that. There we go. This is the Buckley, the Arbo dog. Uh, this is when he was a little bit younger, and he's still cute now. Uh, but these are the pictures that I could find easily, most easily on my phone. That's Buckley. And I love this dog in a way. He has everything he needs. Look at that pillow. That's like a king's pillow. Sometimes I want to nap on that pillow. And you should see his food trough, which is like enough for a cow. And his toy basket, which is bigger than any toy basket that I even own. But catch this. The affection that I feel for this dog is non-existent compared to the love that I have for my wife and my sons and daughters. So thus I, even I, imperfect Patrick, might look at Jennifer and Anna and Amos and Colt and Ellie and say, consider the Buckley. He neither toils nor spins, but he has what he needs. But hey, family, what I feel about him doesn't even compare, doesn't even register next to my love for you. Will you not then trust that I will always try to ensure that you have what you need and when possible and good, what you want? Now, even if I tell them that, their confidence in my ability to provide it is going to be proportionate, on par. It's going to be proportionate with their estimation of me as a man. Right? That's how these things work. Am I the kind of man who's willing to sacrifice for them? Am I able to provide for them? Am I willing to lay down my life for them? The answers to those questions will be equal to how much confidence they have when I say, I'm going to try my best to do this. But I'm imperfect. God is not. God is perfect. And so if our confidence in God should be proportionate to his ability to provide, then our confidence should be limitless. Because he can give us anything we need. He's without limit. 
That's why the examples that are given to us are examples from creation. Because let me ask you, can anyone here raise their hand and indicate that they have the ability to ensure that all the birds on the planet Earth get what they need tomorrow? Any hands that can do that? No, I can't either. Can anyone raise their hand and indicate that they have the ability to ensure that all the flowers on earth get the sun and the rain that they need tomorrow? No, I couldn't raise my hand either. Of course not. But Jesus can raise his hand. And he does. Because he upholds the entire universe by the word of his power. That's what Hebrews tells us. He's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. I found a video on social media and it was of a dad and he had about a, a two, two and a half, three-year-old boy, right? And he was kind of holding him in front of him and they had a, a kiddie pool in the backyard. And so he takes his son over and he kind of sets him down in the kiddie pool with water up to about here. Well, for whatever reason, this boy just hated the water. And he immediately just started with, he was just screaming. He was not liking it at all. Water just up to the shins. So the dad, like any dad, rushes back over and picks him up and puts him onto the concrete. But the son never opened his eyes. And he still felt the witness on his, on his leg. So what did he do when he was put on the concrete? With his eyes closed. And so the dad kind of like shakes him by the shoulders a little bit, just kind of gently rustles him. And he opens his eyes and he... And then he was fine again. And he ran off. I think that's such a great illustration of what anxiety is. See, when you're in the pool... That's actual fear. You're in it. You're in the thing you don't like that's, that's causing you discomfort. But then you're taken out, and what is anxiety? You're not even in the water anymore. You just haven't opened your eyes to the fact that someone who loves you and is going to protect you has put you into a situation where you don't even feel that discomfort or that danger anymore. But you're so certain of it. Why? Because your eyes are closed. And your legs are still wet. There's another illustration that I found, and this is a true story, about a, a young boy who's about 13 who was sailing off the coast of one of the European countries. And he was in his little sailboat and he ran aground. And uh, because, I mean, people knew he was out there, but they couldn't find him. And so he was on this rock in the middle of the, the sea just off the coast for the entire night. And of course, he was soaked because he'd been in the water. And so he was really cold. When they found him, he was trembling. And so they kind of brought him in the boat and they asked me, you know, we're, are you okay? You know, are you too cold? Were you trembling all night? And he said, yes, I was trembling all night, but the rock didn't tremble at all. The rock that he'd washed up on. Ridgeview, the rock doesn't tremble when we tremble. The rock stays the same. That's what rocks do. And Jesus is really good at it. You can trust him. Fear not, little flock. God provides and sustains all of creation of which you are the pinnacle according to Genesis because you're created in his very image. And so Romans 8.32 asks this question, and it's a doozy of a question. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? He will. He will, church. Thirdly, God's kingdom is greater than or better than our sandcastles. Verses 25 and 26. Which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to the span of life? If you then, who are not able to do so small a thing as that, are anxious about that, why would you be anxious about the rest? 
So Jesus' next argument is, again, it's a killer, and it gets right in our faces because if he's, this is what he says, if you worried from now until the cows came home, you wouldn't be able to add by your worry a single hour to your life. And Jesus says, that's a trivial thing for me. I'm the giver of life and growth. I can add an hour to anything I wanted to. He made the sun stand still in the Old Testament. Hours are nothing for me, Jesus says, but you, you, you can't, by all of your worry, even add one hour to your life. So if you can't even do small things like that, why would you be worried about these huge things that you can't control? I love the way D.A. Carson puts this. He says, the point here is that if it's futile to worry about small matters that we can't control, it's even more futile to worry about the larger matters that are even farther beyond our control. Isn't it crazy to think that just maybe a help for our anxiety, which is feeling as though we lack control and we're tossed about in the waves of the sea, is to think about just how little control we actually have? I mean, this verse is such a clear reminder of our dependence upon God. So why not run to Jesus with what you're worried and you're anxious about? When I was in high school, one of my summer jobs was as a brick mason's laborer. We got some master masons in this church, Steve Wade, Casey Wade, there might even be others, uh, but it, it is incredibly hard and incredibly skilled work to do. And one of my summer jobs as a high schooler was to assist them. I had to mix the mortar and sling it up onto the pallets of the scaffolding and, and then keep the masons stocked with bricks by running the tongs up the pulley system. And one day, after I had talked enough about trying to lay a line of brick and how I thought I really could do it, the two men I worked for let me have a little uh, go at it on an out-of-the-way section of wall way off to the side of our project. And the guy who I was working with was actually a member at the church that my dad was pastoring. His name was Mr. Lynn. And he told me at the beginning of my work, okay, if you get off this line, the little line that sets the level, come and get me. I'll help you fix it and get it straight. And then they went off to the trucks to eat their lunch. Well, as you can imagine, I was off the line by like the second brick with mud all over the place. I mean, it was absolutely a travesty. I would, I would not want you to see a picture of this to this day. It was the worst looking line of brick that you would ever see in your entire life. But instead of going to get help and admitting my need and that I was failing, I just tried to roll with it and fix it as I went. And by the end, it was the wonkiest, most jalopy line you've ever laid eyes on. And right when I was done, these two men came walking back around the corner of the house. You know, they had that craftsman's knowledge of exactly how long it was going to take me to mess this up. And they came walking back around the corner of the house right when I got done with it. And one of them, Mr. Lynn, kind of came over and stood next to me and he just looked at the wall in silence. And he just let that silence hang until I was so uncomfortable. I just had to, I tried my best. I'll never forget his response. He said, no, son, you didn't. Your best would have been to come and get me and ask for help. And now we've got to undo all this. Church, we've just got to go and ask for help. 1 Peter 5, 7 says, cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you, just like Lynn cared for me. So why don't we stop trying to change the things we can't control with our worry and take it to the one who can change things? Now, does that mean that all you have to do is ask and you'll get whatever you want or need like some kind of calculator calculation? Okay, well, I enter this prayer, this prayer here and then I hit this button and then I equals and I get exactly what I need. No, that's not how it works. I love what Philippians 4, 6 has to say here. Don't be anxious about anything, but 
in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And what does the rest of the verse say? And God will give you exactly what you need, right when you need it, right when you want it. No, that's not what it says at all. Here's what the rest of the verse says. You do that, you take your prayers and supplication with a thankful heart to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. In other words, he'll protect us in Christ from the wrong heart posture and mental response that we have towards our need until either A, he does give us what we need, or B, he shows us that we really didn't need it to begin with. But he always answers. Garth Brooks was wrong about unanswered prayers. Sorry, might be a lot of Garth fans in the room, but God always answers. All our anxiety accomplishes nothing. Meditate on that. If by worrying your situation could be helped, Arbo would be the first one to tell you, worry like crazy. Worry as much as you totally can. But it can't change a thing, and that's what God's word tells us. Corey Ten Boom said this. She was a missionary, uh, really, in a sense, she was a missionary, and she helped Jewish people flee the Nazis, her and her family, uh, during World War, World War II. And she, was, she and her family were all believers. She said, worry, anxiety, doesn't empty tomorrow of its sorrow. It empties today of its strength. I'll read that again. Worry does not empty tomorrow of its sorrow. It empties today of its strength. Let's close with the fourth leg of the stool, which is this, that your eternal inheritance is greater than any earthly account that you might work towards or set up. Verse 29, don't seek what you're to eat or what you're to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your father knows you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock, for it's your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that don't grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief can approach and no moth destroy. And where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So Jesus' final strategy is to point us to the inheritance that we have as children, adopted children of God. R.C. Sproul says it this way, as heirs of the inexhaustible riches of the kingdom of God, <clears throat> excuse me, Believers should not worry about earthly details. Jesus calls his followers to order their priorities correctly by focusing their hearts on the kingdom. Now, the temptation will be to say, well, Arbo, that's all a ways, a good ways out there in the future, the, all the inheritance stuff and the kingdom stuff, but it will come at some point, so I guess that's pretty cool. And that's kind of true, but only partially. Malcolm Mudridge said this, and I, I love this. He said, Jesus' good news then was that the kingdom of God had come and that he, Jesus, was its herald to men. More than that, in some special mysterious way, Jesus was the kingdom. And you're invited to live in the power and the resources and the identity of the kingdom right now. A book that changed my spiritual life more than any other outside the Bible is a book called The Divine Conspiracy by Dallas Willard. This is what Dallas says in that book. Jesus' words are the best information on the subjects of greatest importance to human beings, whether they know it or not. He is the only solid foundation for our ideas. And here's an example of a big idea from Jesus. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That means the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of the heavens is right here. That's what Jesus preached. He preached the immediate availability of the kingdom of the heavens to anyone who would simply turn away from their sin and walk into it. He preached discipleship as the greatest opportunity that any human could ever have. 
And he preached discipleship because discipleship is how our ideas and our minds get rearranged and corrected. So think of visiting a home in which you've never been before. It's a large house, and you sit for a while with your host in the living room or on the veranda. And then dinner is announced, or the dinner bell's rung, and he ushers you down a hall, saying at a certain point, turn, for the dining room is at hand. Or more likely, hey, here's the dining room. Jesus invites us to step into the kingdom with the same clear wording. There's no suggestion in scripture that the kingdom hasn't happened yet or is about to happen and and about to be here. Where God's will is being accomplished, the kingdom of God is right beside us. It is indeed the kingdom among us. And so Christ invites us to take part in it now as partners with God in the divine conspiracy. This exhilarating role as a co-conspirator with God, agents mixed into the ordinary workings of the world, is the task for which we were born. So you might be thinking, well, that's all well and good, Arbo, but how do I do that? Well, it's as simple and as difficult as this. Write this down if you're writing stuff down. You simply try to live your life as Jesus would live your life if he were living your life for you. I'm going to read that again. Try and live your life as Jesus would live your life if he were living your life for you. And that leads to all kinds of interesting thoughts. If Jesus were living my life, how would he have treated that man who was begging at Walmart? If Jesus were living my life, how would he have responded when my wife asked me to put aside what I really wanted to do to help her with the need that she had? If Jesus were living my life, how would he have reacted to my son or daughter who messed up again? If Jesus were living my life, how would he have interacted with the person who stole my perfect parking spot? Or if you're Pastor John, if Jesus is living your life, how would you respond to the people driving slow in the left lane on 11W? (laughs) Now think of this one, one last question. If Jesus were living your life, would he be anxious about the things that you're anxious about? That you're worried about, that you're stressed about? Well, I guess we'll never know, Arbo. No, we know. Because we have God's word. And I challenge you to find a single place in scripture where Jesus was worried or anxious about anything. He never was. He grieved his perfect knowledge of what he would experience on the cross. He grieved for Lazarus. But there was no anxiety or worry. Fear not, little flock. The conspiracy that is hidden from many is that the kingdom of God has come in Christ. And you can partake of its richness and its blessings now. How? By becoming a disciple of Jesus. For as you start to live your life the way that Jesus would live your life, if he were living it for you, the more you'll find yourself free of anxiety and worry and bitterness and discontentment. You will, like Christ, be secure in the will and the provision of the Father and confident in the leading and the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. Here's a verse that points to our conspirator status using the term ambassador. So you can only be an ambassador of a kingdom that's actually a kingdom. You can't be an an ambassador of a future kingdom. If I walked into some, you know, the UN and said, I'm an ambassador of a kingdom from 30 years from now. What would they, they would laugh at me and throw me out. You can only be an ambassador of a kingdom that's actually a thing right now. A representative of a king who's really reigning. And Jesus is. 2 Corinthians 5.20, therefore we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. So we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Be reconciled. And you can do so now during our invitation. You can join the divine conspiracy through repentance. You just turn away from your sin and say, I want to live in that kingdom. Ridgeview, my brothers and sisters, our lives are more than what we need. 
and we have the bread of heaven and the river of life. Our lives are worth more than birds and flowers and his eyes on the sparrow. God's kingdom is better than whatever sandcastles we might provide or build, and we can build our houses upon the rock. And we have an eternal inheritance as adopted sons and daughters now, not later. So fear not, little flock. It's the Father's good pleasure to give us the kingdom. Let's track our treasure and find our hearts, and let's seek the kingdom and its growth together, and let Jesus worry about these things. Let's pray. Israel is going to come and, and play some music, and as he does, this altar is open. Maybe you have been worried or anxious about something that you need to give up, that you need to take to the Father, that only he can help with, that only Jesus can help with. You'll have time to do that now. Maybe someone else in your life is worried about something or struggling with uh, extreme worry or anxiety. You can pray about that. You can come up and pray about that. Any number of uh, things you can do. I'm going to pray, and then we'll have a, a brief time of invitation, and then uh, Jerry King will come and close us. Lord Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you for the fact that it meets us right where we are. Lord, I am so prone to worry and to be anxious. And so this text preached to me long before it ever preached to these people. I pray that you would help me to live my life as Jesus would live my life if he were living it instead of me. And that that would change the way that I treat others, the way that I look at the world, the way that I look at my problems and my worries and my anxieties. And that this, my church family, could do the same thing. So, Lord, as we have a brief time of invitation, will you move in the midst of your people in all the ways that you see fit? In Christ's name.